0: Some of our time here will be devoting to unpacking particular texts. When all else fails, read the Scripture. If we would learn how to think about something biblically. So what we want to do the rest of tonight, I mean, if I'm still here at midnight, don't feel sorry for me, uh, but we want to go now to a particular text, Psalm 95. Our topic is, who is this one who invites us to worship in His presence? Who is this one? And then the next session we will ask, who gets invited? Two very important topics. And I'm going to root Uh, my first comments on who is this one on Psalm 95. Scholars often refer to a psalm like 95 as a divine enthronement psalm. There are many of these in Scripture. I've given you The references here, either divine enthronement or divine kingship psalms, because they celebrate in most enthusiastic terms the kingship of the Lord. And the telltale mark in the psalm is, The Lord is king. Or some translation has, The Lord reigns, the Lord rules. This is the key expression. You find this in chapter 47, verse 7, chapter 93, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, and actually 100 fits in here. The only problem with 100 is it doesn't have the Lord reigns. Everything else about it is exactly, you know, the same kind of stuff we have in these psalms. Psalm 95 is the second of this cluster of divine kingship psalms. In the first of these, 93, the psalmist speaks directly to God, praising him for his eternal and universal rule. In each of 96 to 99, the psalmist calls on the nations of the earth to join in the celebration of the kingship. But in this one... This one is different. This one is addressed to Israel, that is, the community of faith. This is not an invitation to the world to worship God, it's an invitation to Israel. And surely, true worship must begin there. Let me begin by reading Psalm 95. And as I read it, you will notice the structure of this psalm. It divides into three parts. It begins with. Uh, no, I, I. Oh, this isn't the final edited version of uh, what we were working with. All right, it's okay. Part one, it, verses one to five, gives us the call to true and authentic worship, verses one to five. It's not actually worship yet. It's the call to worship. Then part 2, verses 6 to 7b, the verse numbers here are, are kind of out of place. Gordon Fee, a favorite New Testament scholar of mine, tells us that the first principle of biblical interpretation is get rid of the numbers. The Bible wasn't written with chapter and verse numbers. And sometimes the kind bishop responsible for these was obviously doing his work on the way to church, and the horse stumbled, and he got the line between the verses in the wrong place, and that happened here. So, it's verses 6 to 7b, and then 7c, the last line, is the introduction to the third part, the evidence of true and authentic worship. Did you see this? The call to worship, the nature of worship, and the evidence of worship. As I read this, you will notice the tone changes. The mood shifts. So hear the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Part three, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest." really that doesn't sound like we like those first five verses and there are lots of people who write their books on worship on the first five verses this is worship come let us sing for joy to the Lord the interesting thing is the words for worship don't even show up there they're in the next part But we'll talk about that. Notice the dramatic shift. I can imagine. Part one is the response of the psalmist to the invitation by God. Come into my house. And as we're marching up the hill, he is saying, let's sing for joy. He's invited us into his presence. That's worth celebrating. He has called us Himself, but then once you're in the house, everything changes. The singing stops, the mouths close, and the ears open. We don't hear much talk about that in our debates and squabbles about worship. Well, my purpose this evening is not to work through this whole psalm systematically, but to reflect on how it might inform our understanding of worship. When I read this passage, I learn five lessons on worship. Lesson number one, true and authentic formal worship involves an audience with a great king by the king's invitation on the king's terms. There's where we start. It's an audience with a king, by the king's invitation on the king's terms. Well, our task right now is to look at who is this king who invites us to worship? Who is this God we worship, and why is he worthy of worship? As we read this psalm, I discover there are half a dozen reasons why the Lord is worthy of worship. First, he is worthy of worship because because he is supreme among the gods. Did you see this? Oh, come, let us worship For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. There's a logic to the way the psalmist talks about the Lord in this psalm. After calling his fellow Israelites to join him, to sing for joy to the Lord, to shout joyfully, to enter into his presence with thanksgiving, now in verses 3 to 5, he describes why this is such an awesome privilege. Guess what? The one who is king above all gods invites us into his palace. How does he emphasize the greatness of God. A couple of ways. First, the Lord is El-Gadol. Two Hebrew words here. The first is an epithet for God. The second is an adjective. He is the great El, often translated simply G-O-T. But if you lived in that cultural context and you heard the, the word El, you wouldn't think only generically of G-O-D, because El was the name of the great Canaanite God. You have this in some compound names in the Bible. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, or you, you have any idea what that means? Most people don't, but it's a beautiful tune. El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Olam, El Elohe Israel, El Barith, El Roi, El. This is an epithet for God. But in Canaanite religion, El was the name of the big papa god, grandpa, up there in the heavenlies. Is the high god, Asherah is the grandma, and all the other gods are his kids. We know this from Canaanite mythological literature that they discovered among the 15,000 tablets up at Ras Shamra, mythological texts that have just opened up the Scriptures to us. Now when we read about El and Asherah and and Baal, Baal, we know what we're talking about. In Canaanite mythology, El is the highest god, the king among the gods. He is called the father of years, the bull El, the husband of Asherah, and the father of all the gods. And if you want to know what he looked like, here we go. This is El, a magnificent fellow, isn't he? The only problem in Canaanite, uh, re, the mythology is that El has become a senile old man and he can't keep control of his kids. So, Baal and Mot and the other gods are always fighting and they want their own thrones and El is having a hard time maintaining power and control of this family. That's the pathetic Canaanite God. The Lord is el all, the only one worthy of the name El, and he is the great El, not the senile old man. Not only is he the great El, notice he is king above well, I should have read a couple of other verses where we have this expression. The Lord is ale. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome ale, who is not partial, takes no bribe. Nehemiah 9:32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant, steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little upon you. Notice... Our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome, El. This guy we just saw here is is not very awesome. Second, he is a great king above all gods. As if it's not enough to identify him as the great, El, our psalmist adds. Whatever gods you might imagine, guess What? He's above and beyond them all. He is a great king above all gods. And now you have to recognize how that word gods is used. If we are not thinking quite right, you might think that, well, he's admitting there are other gods, but he's not really. You see, in in biblical thought, there are three spheres of existence. There's the heavenly sphere, there's the earthly sphere, and there's the netherworld. People live in all three parts. In the heavens, you have the spirit beings, and they can be called generically Elohim. means resident of heaven. That's why angels are sometimes called the sons of God, the Elohim. It's common. They are called the Elohim. God is above all the heavenly residents. And then on earth we've got us and all the critters. And then down below we have the living dead. Uh, That's for another time. The Lord is a great king above all gods. This expression is echoed in many psalms. Psalm 96, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols but the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 97.9, For you, the Lord Most High, or, or over all the earth. You're exalted far above God's. Psalm 135, I know that the Lord is great. It's always Yahweh is great. Our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, the seas and all the deeps. He is who governs everything. Wow. The Lord who invites us to worship is this one. He is not some petty little deity who, of, of whom you can make an image and set it up on your, in, in your bedroom. He is beyond description. He invites us into his presence. How can worship be casual when we begin to recognize that? The Lord is, well, here's some other gods. If you're not worshiping Ale, you're worshiping this guy. The storm god who lives on Mount Saphon, or here's another image, always with a, with a, a lightning rod uh, or the lightning bolt and, and the thunder, uh, the weather god. He's the one that gives you gives you your crops. Oh, this is the female goddess, always with exaggerated sexual features. This is my favorite, the Hittite storm god. He's a friendly chap. But of course, you can do that because you always are creating gods in your own image. You want to create for yourself a god that's happy with you. He's plasticine in your hands, in, or play whatever, clay, instead of the other way around. Those are tiny little gods. Pathetic little gods. Not so the God of Israel. Second, He is worthy of worship because He is above all the heavenly beings. Second, He is worthy of worship because He is sovereign over the whole cosmos. Did you see this? Verse, uh, uh, verse three. For in whose hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. He made it. He's got the whole world in his hand. What a powerful image. Like a young boy holding a ping pong ball. So the Lord holds this little blue globe in his hands. And actually, now that Hubble has shown us what, God holds all the universe just like this in his hand. These are his toys, his playthings that he made. He holds the depths of the earth. In, this reminds me of Psalm 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters of, in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span, He enclosed the depths of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. This is our God. He holds the whole world in his hands. He owns the mountain tops. Now, when the psalmist is writing this, when he thinks of big mountains, he thinks of Mount Hermon. There's Mount Hermon, which rises 9,200 feet above sea level. And of course, if you've grown up in the desert of the Negev, or if you've grown up along the Mediterranean, that's a big mountain. And to a landlubber, that is a big mountain, if you've never been anywhere else. That's Mount Hermon. But the Canaanites had their mountain as well. Mount Saphon, or Safan. That's where Baal's temple was, way up north, in Lebanon, or southern Syria. That's where Mount Safon is, 5,600 feet above. But you go to Greece, and guess what? The gods live in the mountains there, too, don't they? Mount olympus, or uh, <laughs> never been here i 'll never forget the first the first time I went to uh, i took this highway up north from, British, uh, from Vancouver, take it through the mountains, and then you come across, I grew up in Saskatoon, up in the prairies there, you come across through Edmonton. I'll never forget the scene that faced us when we were coming from the west, and all of a sudden, Mount Robson was in front of me, and I I had never seen anything like that before. Wow. Spectacular but you don't have to go up there. We have our own Mount Rainier, and I noticed they just renamed a mountain in Alaska. Spectacular mountain. I wonder what God calls these mountains. I mean, what we call them is beside the point ultimately. He made them all. God owns the mountaintops. The psalmist hereby declares, there's only one person who owns every one of these little pimples on this earth. He's the God of Israel. Third, the Lord is creator of everything that exists. If you write a paper, those of you who are students, it's your paper. You wrote it. I hope it's yours unless you plagiarized We've had those problems, too. Or if you build a chair, it's yours. You made it. Or a table. Whatever else, you draw a picture, it's yours. You made it. He made all this, too. This is the one we worship, the one who made everything, who owns everything. We own nothing. And if seeing these kinds of things doesn't drive you to worship you're in a coma I'll never forget I mentioned before that I grew up in Saskatchewan a thousand miles northwest of Minneapolis They have winter there I tell my students in Chicago who come from Florida and California I said winter never comes to Chicago In middle of January I say nice October day isn't it It just teases you a little. Winter doesn't come to Kansas City either. I know that. Come with me up there to a real winter. You know what I love about real winter when it's minus 45 below? There isn't a cloud in the sky. Never. And after doing the chores on the farm. We'd go out behind the barn and we'd lie down in the snow and we'd watch the heavens dance. Do you get the northern lights up here? Not much. We don't in Chicago either. But my goodness, these are just photographs, but that's alive. It sings, and and it's all over the place, all the colors of the rainbow. You can go on on the Internet. You can find find movies, YouTube things of this from northern Norway or northern Canada or Alaska. Spectacular. In fact, it was the sight of one of these one day that drove me into the kingdom of God. I thought the Lord was coming back. I can't miss this. Awesome. It's the most spectacular natural wonder I've ever seen. guess what? Who made that? God did. This is the one who invites us to worship. You know, we think it would be great. I sometimes imagine, you know, my roots are Canadian, and I sometimes have imagined that what it would be like if Queen Elizabeth would invite me to Buckingham Palace for an audience with her. Wouldn't that be spectacular? Oh, but it's chicken feed compared to this. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is why David celebrates in First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is, it is to make great and give strength. And now we thank you, our God, our praise and praise your glorious name. He can't find vocabulary to express his delight that God, this God, has called us to worship. But there's a third reason why he's worthy of worship, and I think this is what really excites the psalmist. It isn't only the big stuff. It's also the little stuff. Look at this. The Lord is worthy of worship because he has established a special relationship with his people. For all the psalmist's excitement about the Lord's right to worship by virtue of his bigness, transcendence, I get the impression that this is what really blows his mind. Notice first... The Lord is worthy of worship because he has rescued Israel from bondage. Actually, this is how he starts. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Oh, that's a new dimension to the relationship we have with this God. He's not only the creator of everything. He is our Savior. This is fabulous. uh, In Psalm 89, 26, David cries out, you are my Father, the rock of my salvation. Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His way is perfect for all His ways are just. The rock, He is the rock of our salvation. Psalm 31, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to me. The Lord is worthy of worship because he has rescued us from that which threatens us most. Judgment, damnation, whatever else. Contrary to what the way Israelites might be tempted to think, especially in times of prosperity, they owned their very existence to God. Where would Israel be if the Lord hadn't saved them? They'd still be in Egypt making bricks without straw, and they would have been lost in the populations of Egypt. God saved them. He hand-picked them. Second, he has entered into, he's worthy of worship because he's entered into covenant relationship with her. Look at verse 7. The psalmist grounds the call to kneel before the Lord on the fact that he is our God. Not only is he our God, which is the beginning of that what we call the covenant formula. I will be your God, you will be my people. He's our God. Oh, there's a sense in which He is God of everybody. He made it all. But He is our God twice. First, because He made us. Secondly, because He called us to covenant relationships with Himself. And He made that covenant Possible. Leviticus twenty-two, thirty-three. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. That's salvation. To be your God, I am the Lord. Leviticus twenty-six, forty-five. But for their sake, I will remember my covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt, in the sight of all the nations, that I might be their God. Did you notice that God didn't get Israel out of Egypt only to get them out of Egypt? Remember Exodus 19, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That's what God did. He made Israel his own covenant people. In fact, he goes on to use a very special expression. Did you see this? We are the sheep. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I love that. What does it remind you of? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That's why all my needs are met. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff nudge me to safety. Remind me of your presence. We tend to think of rod and staff as instruments of punishment, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child or whatever. This is not that kind. The staff is used to beat up wolves, not sheep. Sheep find comfort in the staff because with the staff, the shepherd lets the sheep know, I'm here, and he guides them through the dangerous territories. That's a great source we are His people, the object of His care. Well, first principle of worship. True worship happens at the invitation to an audience with a great king. Principle number one. Principle number two. We won't take so much time on number two and three. True worship involves, begins on our knees, here we go, in a gesture of submission and homage, a physical declaration of unworthiness. Did you see this? Now we'll finally come to worship. Verse 6, come, let us worship. Oh, but what does that mean? I mean, to us it means let's go to church or let's sing. But in Hebrew, this has a very particular meaning. It's illustrated on here. This is relief, King Jehu, before officials of Shalmaneser, the Assyrian king. Here he is. What's he doing? Prostrating himself. That's the Hebrew word for worship. Hishtachawah. That's what it means. And if you don't believe me, read on. Come. Let us prostrate ourselves. Let us, somebody, bow down. (laughs) And if you don't like that, read on. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Oh, finally we're getting to worship. And isn't that ironical? You know, for all our discussion of worship and our fights, in evangelical circles, this is one thing we rarely do. You see, in American culture, We have very few symbols of submission and homage, showing respect. I mean, we used to tip the hat. We used to, when we walked into the house, take our hats off. Now, I've got students who come to class with their hats on, and they don't take them off. ask, what in the world has happened? If a Jewish friend would enter the room and would see that here we're reading the book of Ezekiel in Hebrew, and these people have their hats on. Oh, that must be a yarmulke, the, the Jewish beanie. No, it is actually the opposite. Our Jewish friends wouldn't, the Orthodox, wouldn't think of reading Scripture without that hat on. To us, it is exactly the opposite, and so in my syllabi, I always have a note. Students may not view a baseball cap as a modern equivalent of the Jewish yarmulke. We're involved in sacred business. And out of respect for other people, we should take our hats off, if nothing else. But we have none of that. We've lost it all, which is why this is all so foreign to us. We're all equal. In fact, these days, the animals are running the farm. We're all equal. No, 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 no. True worship involves reverential acts of submission and homage. We were attended a church in Louisville, I Baptist Church, and they were remodeling, and they were going to get new pews. And so I suggested, you know, would we think of getting pews with kneeling benches? Do you know what the response is? We're Baptist. Really? We're Baptist. We don't need to do that. We don't kneel before anybody. That's a problem. What expressions of submission and homage do we have if we don't do this? And the interesting thing is, when we gather for worship, this is one thing we never do. That is the Hebrew word for worship. And guess what? It's also the Greek word for worship, proskuneo. It's exactly the same semantic range, exactly. It's what we never do. We translate it as worship, and we think, oh, it means singing. No, it doesn't mean singing. It means getting on my face before God. I am not worthy. But we're the opposite. We come into the church on a Sunday morning and say, here I am, Lord, aren't you lucky? I could be out golfing. Really. This is how worship starts. It is the response to the Lord's revelation of himself, which begins with saying, I am not worthy. In that culture, this is how you express it. There are places where they still do this. This is a clearer picture of that. Oh, come, let us worship. Here. There's one place in Scripture where lifting the hands is associated with worship. (laughs) And and I think it's in, in, in Nehemiah 8. They raise their hands and bow down. Try it. I can assure you, it ain't this. It's probably this, as you see it on this slow mo picture from ancient Egypt. That's worship. There are people who still do that in our day. You go to the airport, you see this sign. Somebody understands it. We don't. Somebody does. Or you've seen this picture. I was at the Minneapolis airport last winter transferring, and all of a sudden there's a guy got out his carpet underneath the stairway, and he rolled out his carpet, and that's what he was doing. Wasn't one bit embarrassed. Facing Mecca in worship. Ah, oh, but we don't, we don't have to do that. Some people still remember what the word means. Come, let us worship. This is worship. This is the right response to God. Our son lives in Vancouver. They go to St. John's Church, the largest Anglican church. We didn't raise our kids very well. We're Mennonite brethren, and our kids have gone Anglican. It is the largest Anglican church in Canada and the most evangelical. They've been been kicked out of their diocese for their evangelical witness and everything else. It's a fabulous church. But you know what I like about that place? Every worship service begins on our knees, literally, which is such an appropriate gesture. We are here by your grace and at your invitation. what a grace. We are not worthy, but God calls us anyhow. I bring this to a close. Well, just one more illustration. Again, this is all court language. If Nebuchadnezzar invited you to his court, he could have several different reasons for ushering you in before his throne. He's seated on the throne the usher brings you in, and when you get to the front, you fall down like that. And you're not quite sure, why has he called me? It could be because you've been a naughty boy, and he's out to get you. Away with this guy! And you wait for his tap on the shoulder, because you, when you come to him, you would automatically, down on your knees... You wait for him to say, Rise, that I may speak with you. And then you know he's accepted your worship. That's the kind of image we're talking about here. The mark uh, of true and authentic worship is a soft heart demonstrated in unconditional acceptance. Did you see this? Today, if you hear his voice oh, but when we come to church, we're shouting so loud, God doesn't have a chance to talk. And the louder we shout, the more into it we've been, and the more we think we've worshipped. Really. This is not about what we do for God. There used to be a song, I sing to you, you sing to me, but our audience is Jesus. Who do we think we are inviting Jesus to an audience with us? Who's on the throne? No. The wisdom writers had very little to say about worship. But all of a sudden, in Ecclesiastes 5, there's a curious text. Very little to say about what we do in church. But here, look. Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. They don't know they're doing evil. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When we are at worship, what God says to us is always more important than what we say to him. This is an audience with God. He calls, he speaks. I must hurry on. In true worship, what the Lord says to the worshiper is always more important than what the worshiper says to God. And fourth, in true worship, the mark of a true worship is a soft heart demonstrated in unqualified acceptance. Today, if you will hear His voice, that's the audience, harden not your heart, like the Israelites did at Meribah and Massah. God spoke, but what did they do? Their hearts were fossilized, and they resisted. And then finally, the reward for true and authentic worship is the divine gift of rest that's why they didn't enter my rest. You see, rest is not an unqualified promise. Rest is given to those who respond to the invitation to worship on God's terms. Today, if you hear His voice, soften your heart. They didn't. That's why they didn't enter my rest. Well, there are so many reasons why the Lord is worthy of worship. This song, this psalm has just scratched the surface. We'll take a break, and if we hang around till midnight, we'll look at Psalm 24 and 15. Let's break for a few minutes.